Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We're in Matthew chapter 18. We just left Jesus and the disciples who had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, cast out the moonstruck demoniac who was being thrown into the water. The disciples had a little trouble casting it out, and then Jesus cast it out. And then they were on their way back to Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we've got two synoptic parallel passages we need to to deal with here because it turns out the dispute over who was the greatest in the heaven happened on the way to Capernaum from the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 9.43 uh, said that the disciples, after disputing among themselves, came to Jesus. Mark 9.33 says this, Then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? So on the way from the Mount of Transfiguration to Capernaum, they got into an argument. Now, it turns out what they were arguing about is who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's why Jesus is now getting ready to teach them on who is the greatest in the kingdom of, of heaven. Now, we need to reconcile some differences in the three synoptic versions. In Mark 9, 9.33, the disciples, after disputing among themselves, came to Jesus, at which time Jesus asked them, who is the greatest in heaven? Jesus is doing the asking in Mark. And then Matthew 18.1, the verse I just read, says at that time the disciples came to Jesus and said and asked. So two different people asking. The Luke parallel passage doesn't mention anybody asking, so that's not a problem. We'll leave that out. But now let's talk about how to reconcile Who's doing the asking, Jesus or the disciples? John Gill does the reconciliation for us. He says the disciples dispute among themselves on the way from the Mount of Transfiguration to Capernaum. Jesus knew what they were disputing about, either because he was omniscient and was God. I don't think so. He probably just overheard them grumbling and, and fighting amongst themselves. When they finally got to Capernaum, then Jesus asked the disciples, uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples are too ashamed to answer him. But upon reflecting that Jesus knew what they were talking about, they went ahead and took courage and asked Jesus, okay, who's the greatest? They, in other words, they repeated the question Jesus had asked of them. So that way that reconciles the two passages. Now, what was the occasion as to what prompted the question is who was the greatest? Why were the disciples disputing among themselves who was the greatest? Well, remember Peter at Caesarea Philippi had been given the keys to the kingdom. And when, that's when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. And then they went down to the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Moses and Eliza, Jesus, and Jesus glorified before their very eyes. And there he had mentioned that he was going to rise from the dead. And of course, when a Jew heard about resurrection of dead, he thought that that meant the kingdom of the Messiah had come. Now, it's true that the disciples had trouble understanding that, but there was enough glory that Jesus had told them about that where they were thinking, ah, kingdom's coming and where am I going to be in it? They were totally and utterly carnal in this situation. They seemed to ignore what he said about him getting killed, him, him being crucified. Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 4. Then he called a child to him and had him stand among them. I assure you, he said, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And here, of course, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples humility. Now, we're going to talk about children here from verse 2 to verse 14. And it's true that children are mentioned, but they're mentioned not as an object in themselves, but as a metaphor for childlike believers people who are innocent and pure in their belief in the kingdom. It's not literally, Jesus' main point is not talking about children, although, of course, you can apply what he says directly to children with no trouble, and we should do that. 
Now, what is it like a child that makes being like a child necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, a child is trusting, he's unpretentious, he's humble, and he's free from ambition. Now, you notice that Jesus is not mentioning the unfortunate aspects of children, their rebellion, their immaturity. He's, he's abstracting away from that. He's just talking about the good things that we like about children. And so basically he's saying, disciples, quit arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You need to start being humble like these little children. Children aren't rulers, and but you need to be rulers. It's the, in the world that rulers are, that children are not rulers, but in the kingdom, children are rulers. Humble people. You need to be humble. Now, when Jesus says, unless you are converted that's, or changed, as the NIV has, that sounds to me like Jesus is saying, you need to change your hearts, disciples. Sounds like a pretty good rebuke of the disciples. He's trying to get them from the gross idea of a glorious temporal kingdom, which was not going to come just yet. Now, he says, you don't, you don't start being humble. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it does take humility to believe in Jesus, to turn your life over to somebody now, speaking now after Pentecost, to turn your life over to somebody you can't see, to run your life. That takes a lot of humility, and that's what that's what you need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a far cry from being the biggest big shot in the kingdom. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, uh, you're not even going to get in, boys, unless you humble yourself like a child. Now, the good news is that all of these disciples, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, all of these disciples turned their minds away from these carnal notions and ended up being like children. They were persecuted all over the Roman Empire, all over Jerusalem. Most of them were killed before their normal lifespan had expired. They knew what it was like to be humble at the end. But they needed to be taught right here. Matthew 18, verses 5 through 6. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Remember now, the child is referring to a childlike believer, a disciple of Christ. So if we wel welcome disciples, whenever we welcome a disciple of Christ, we're welcoming Jesus himself. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Now Jesus is saying here, look, my little my believers, the people who believe in me, you better treat them good because they're my children and you better not cause them to stumble. Now, think about all a youth leader who engages in sexual immorality and causes all of his people to stumble. Think about all these big-shot megachurch pastors who are screwing around with their secretaries or have a homosexual relationship with the organist or whatever it is they're doing or embezzle $5 million. All this horrible stuff that you see in the press all the time. What does it do to the people in the church? It causes them to stumble. What did Jesus say? It would better be for the, for him who caused that person to stumble. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And if you look at the anguish of all these fallen pastors, the stories behind it, if you read the accounts of those downfalls, I think many of them would agree that it would be better if they were sunk in the ocean than having to live through the hell that they're living through. We need to remember that. It says a heavy millstone, by the way, not just a millstone, but a heavy millstone. Why? Because there were some millstones that were used by women in their homes very light. So this was this was the one that was outside. It's called the millstone of a donkey, literally in the Greek. It was turned by a donkey. And those were big millstones. I've seen some of these in museums in China. And they're just big, huge slabs of stone. No way you're going to float with that thing around your neck. This is what they did, apparently, to some malefactors in the ancient times they'd tie a millstone around the neck and drop them over over the boat that was the end of them why would jesus bring this up now about causing little ones to stumble because he knew that the leaders in the kingdom who are always talking about being big shots and what their place in the kingdom is going to be are going to cause the disciples to stumble 
And so that's why he brought it up right here. And application time, how many times do you know, how many times does it turn off the average Christian to see his leaders bickering and social climbing and playing ecclesiastical politics so they can be a big shot, so they can have a big ministry, so they can have a big church, and look how many people are coming to my church. It's nauseating if you've ever seen that, and I bet you probably have. Jesus said, be better to put a millstone around your neck and drop them into the sea because you're causing people to stumble when you do that. Now, when he says little ones, but whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones, again, he's not talking about children. He's talking about disciples, as Adam Clark says. Now, if he's talking about disciples being like children, is he talking about disciples being young in age, or is he talking about disciples being young in faith? I think it's very clear he's talking about disciples being young in faith. Here's an example of how he uses that metaphor in Luke 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and have revealed them to infants, little children. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. And here he's not talking about little kids. He's talking about baby Christians who don't understand spiritual things. But God chooses to reveal things, spiritual things to them. Mark 10:24. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus called his disciples children, little ones. These, this verse is always good for big shot ecclesiastics, big shots in the kingdom of God. Just to read this, you're not, you're not such a big shot. Not if you're going to, to please the Lord. You're not, a, you're not going to act like a big shot. You're going to act like a child. Matthew 18, verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now, the NIV takes offenses, translates the Greek word for offenses as things that cause people to sin. So it would read like this, Woe to the world because of things that cause people to sin. Stumbling blocks, I think the King James have it. I can't remember, but it's, that's what it means. It's stumbling blocks. Gill says it means temptations to sin. So woe to the world because of temptations to sin that make believers sin, that make little children, disciples who are like little children to sin. For offenses must come. That means in the world it's going to happen. We live in a world, a sinful world, and, and they're going to happen. There's no way to get around that while we live on the earth. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. We can't use it as an excuse to say, well, you know, this is a hard world. It's going to happen, so don't blame me. No. You're at blame if you increase the offenses that are in the world. We're not supposed to make Jesus' little ones to stumble. Why must these offenses come? He's got a good quote from John Gill here. Considering the implacable malice of Satan, his unwearied and indefatigable pains, the malignity of the men of the world, their aversion and enmity the gospel of Christ, that's the world we live in. They're going to hate us, and they're going to cause Jesus' little ones to stumble, but we should not participate in the world's work. Now, when he says, woe to the world because of offenses, it sounds like doom's coming on you, world, and I believe that's exactly what it means. Unfortunately, Adam Clark, the Arminian, says, well, we can translate that word as alas. So, alas, alas, the world has offenses. So, there's, it shows sympathy and concern with the world, less of a feeling of judgment on the world. But I think Clark's Arminianism got the best of him here. I don't think there's any sympathy at all with the world. I think God is saying, you're going to be judged. The world is going to be judged because of its attitude toward his disciples on this earth. Woe to the world. Woe to the world. As in the seven woes in Matthew 23, woe to Jerusalem. Matthew 18, verses 8 through 9. If your hand or your foot causes your downfall, cut it off and throw it away. 
It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell fire. Now, why did Jesus bring that up here? Well, because he's talking about things that cause people to stumble things that would cause his little ones, his young disciples, his child disciples, if you will, his baby Christians, what's going to cause them to stumble. And, of course, the thing that's going to cause them to stumble that Jesus is dealing with here is their pride and their ambition to be the big shots in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, basically, throw that away. Cut it off out of your life. Cut your pride and your arrogance out of your life. You don't want to do that. And he uses a nice little metaphor, which he also used in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, uh, to, to illustrate this. He says, listen, if you've got something in your body that's causing you to stumble, cut it off. And that's serious business to cut off one of your limbs and throw it away. It's better to limp around in life to be maimed than to be thrown into hell, into the eternal fire. Now, this little saying here, of course, was not meant to be taken literally. It's not being taken to be literally his. The NIV Study Bible says it's not teaching mutilation. He's using hyperbole, as Gordon Fee says in his book on hermeneutics. The point is to deal with sin as drastically as is necessary. Now, I knew a guy at one time. I'll never forget this. I was in my early 20s. I met a blind guy. I asked him how he became blind. He said he read, not this passage, but the one in the Sermon on the Mount, which says basically the same thing. And he says he looked at a woman to lust after her, so he jerked his eyes out, both of them, blind as a bat for the rest of his life. You know, interpreting the Bible erroneously in a hyper-literal fashion can get you into trouble. should be a good lesson for all good dispensationalists. You're supposed to interpret the Bible naturally and reasonably. If it's a miracle, it's a miracle. If it's history, if it's history. If it's prophecy, it's prophecy not meant to be taken literally. And if it's hyperbole, it's not meant to be taken literally as here. Now, you notice that what happens to people who cause his little ones to stumble, or if someone who has something in their life that causes them to stumble, they're going to be thrown into the eternal fire. That's hell. Now contrast that eternal fire with Rob Bell's attitude toward hell, or the ultimate reconciliation, The Shack, that ridiculous book that had God as Aunt Jemima, where everybody's going to get saved, even if he's Adolf Hitler, or Mao Zedong, or any other horrible dictator of history. He's going to get saved. No, eternal fire. Now, of course, that's a metaphor also. I don't know if hell's literally fire. In another place, it says it's gloom and darkness in the abyss. Those two metaphors have contradictory accident, uh, uh, accidental qualities uh, to them. But the point is, you're gonna, it's not going to be pleasant if you cause somebody to stumble. Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones. Again, the little humble childlike disciples in the kingdom you disciples who are trying to be big shots in the kingdom trying to find your place of rulership don't look down on these little ones because i tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven in other words they are worth a lot and you're not worth more than they are just because you're leaders just because you're leaders amongst the apostles you're not worth not a not a not a farthing worth more than these little kids now, this is the famous verse that says that all children, or allegedly claims that all children have guardian angels looking after them. Now, let's look at this. There's a couple of things that Scripture does not teach. First is that guardian angels are just for children only. Now, I'm going to give you three examples in the Scriptures where angels look after adults, too. Psalm 34, verse 7. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Of course, that might be Jesus. angel of the Lord could be Jesus, but might not be. Psalm 91.11, For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. That's the verse that Jesus quoted in the, tempt- in the wilderness temptation. But the point is here is that angels are looking after adults, including Jesus, you know, not little kids. Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits? Talking about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? And of course, that includes adults. So we have angels looking after us, and that's the way God runs his kingdom. I don't know anything about angels. I really wish I knew more. It's one of my weak spots, but I know that angels are there looking after us, not just after kids. Now, there's another thing that people claim that this scripture teaches, and that is that there's only one guardian angel per child. The scripture doesn't say that. Because this scripture could easily be interpreted to mean that children collectively have several angels guarding them. For example, you could have ten children and there are five angels guarding them. Let's read the verse with that in mind. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven these little ones, these ten little ones, because I tell you that in heaven there are five angels continually view the father my the face of my father in heaven. You can easily read it that way. However, Adam Clark gives the old traditional opinion. He agrees with that. He says, Our Lord here not only alludes to, but in my opinion, establishes the notion received by almost all nations, viz., that every person has a guardian angel, and that these have always access to God to receive orders relative to the management of their children. So, some people believe that's a guardian angel. I don't know if each kid has one guardian angel. I somehow don't. You know, I just think the angels, they're looking after them somehow. Now, these little ones, of course, again, we've got to remember that the little ones is primarily being the reference of the little ones is disciples. Jesus is not talking about children here. He's talking about disciples, followers of him. John Gill says this, and Adam Clark says this. Here's a quote from Adam Gill. One of these little ones that believed in Christ, for he's not speaking of infants in age, but of those who might be compared to such for their humility and modesty, who were little in their own eyes and mean and despicable in the eyes of the world, as well as appeared but little in the eyes of their fellow disciples and brethren. For our Lord returns and addresses himself to his disciples who had been contending among themselves who should be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I think there's no question about that. He's referring to disciples, not little kids. Now, it says that these angels who are looking after the little kid, the little disciples or the little kids, the angels that are looking after them, uh, view their father in heaven. They view the face of their father in heaven. Or actually, it says, view the face of my, Jesus' father in heaven. Well, what does that mean, to view the face of God the Father? Here's some options. One, to receive orders from the Father as to how to protect the little believing ones. That's John Gill. B, two, because they see the face of Jesus' Father, God the Father, they intellectually understand what God wants, and so they're able to look after their charges. Option three, the angels contemplate and applaud God's perfections, and thus are worthy guardians. So, that's John Gill also. Here's option number four from John Gill. The angels are ready to lodge a complaint with God against any who would interfere with the protected little one. Possibly so. But this is what I think it is, fifth option. This is from Adam Clark, who says that looking at Jesus, God's face refers to the privilege the angels have to be in God's throne room. And the idea, if you're privileged to be in God's room, 
God's throne room where you can see his face. That means God's going to give you everything, that angel, everything he needs to look after his little kids or his, his young disciples. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. This is an allusion to the privilege granted by Eastern monarchs to their chief favorites, a privilege which others were never permitted to enjoy. And a good way to show this is two translations with Esther 1.14. The first translation is Holman Christian Study Bible. And it's going to talk about having personal access to the king. And then the KJV, King James, Esther 1.14, actually says these people saw the king's face. Let's read Holman Christian Study Bible first, Esther 1.14. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethan, Admatha, Tarshan, Meriz, Marcina, and Mamukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. Here's the KGV. And the next unto him were Karshem, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face. So had personal access in Holman Christian Study Bible and saw the king's face in KGV. So the idea is these angels have personal access to God so they could get whatever power, whatever knowledge, whatever they need in order to take care of their charges, which are little children, and but more particularly, little Christian children, little young disciples of Christ. Matthew 18, verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save the lost. Now, the NIV omits this verse. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in as a textual uh, variant. Some manuscripts have it, some don't. We're going to assume it's there because in another place where there is no textual question, that's in Luke 19:10. Jesus says exactly the same thing. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come into the world to judge the world because the world was already judged, but he came to seek and to save, to look after to look for and save the lost. This looking after and saving the lost, of course, is directly in contrast to the arrogance of the disciples who were thinking about ruling over the lost ones. They're thinking about ruling the lost ones, and Jesus is thinking about saving the lost ones. Big, big difference. Matthew 18:14, which is three verses later, Jesus says, In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So he's not worried about ruling the little ones. He's worried about saving the little ones because he knows that the persecution like crazy is coming up. They're going to kill him, and they're going to, just like they persecuted the master, they're going to persecute the disciples, and it's going to be a real, real hard time for the infant church. And that's what Jesus is interested in, and he knows these guys going to run around trying to be big shots in the kingdom that wasn't even going to be established yet in its glorious form, that they weren't going to be prepared to take care of these little children, these little disciples. He wants them, the disciples, to think about preserving them from destruction so that they not be lost. Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14. And we'll finish up with this section. What do you think? Jesus continues as he teaches his disciples. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now the ninety-nine sheep that are on the hillside and not wandering, those are the scribes and the Pharisees who didn't think they were lost. The one represents the little one who believes in Jesus, and of course... He's in danger of getting lost because he's a minority and he's also a persecuted minority. Now, so again, Jesus is continuing with the idea, you're not going to be ruling over the lost sheep. You're going to be protecting them and saving them from that they might perish. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is perish physically because of the persecution that's coming. I don't think he's talking about they're perished in hell. Because he's talking about his disciples, of course he's not going to say one of his disciples is in danger of perishing in hell because they're not going to hell, they're going to heaven. So I think he's talking about he doesn't want them to die physically. Now, think about the implications for the doctrine of 
perseverance of the saints or its eternal security. Some people don't like to call it. But think about that. It is not God's will that any of his little ones perish. Well, then if somebody loses their salvation, that means God's will, the will of the Father in heaven, has been violated. God, the omniscient God, has his will violated? I will leave that to you Armenian theologians out there to explain that one. We are now finished with the first 14 verses of Matthew 18 about children in the kingdom of heaven. We'll start with verse 15 next and get into some church discipline stuff. Hope you enjoyed this video. Excuse me, this audio.